0: Welcome to the Scripture Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the Scripture that have become real to us because we believe that helps us draw more power out of them, and we certainly need all of that power. I'm your host, Carrie Mielstein, and this is a short cast on the topic of Capernaum and the uh, stories that are in Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to get into a, a couple of elements of those stories and elements about Capernaum that I think are just really important and, and wonderful to talk about. Okay, so let's just do some nuts and bolts about the city. Uh, first of all, its name is uh, in Hebrew or Aramaic, Kephar Nahum, which literally means the village of Nahum. Um, in, in Greek, which is how we, we uh, get it in, in the New Testament, it's in Greek, um, it says uh, uh, Kaphar Nahum, which is probably as close as they can do to Kephar Nahum. There's no H in, in Greek, so Kephar Nahum. You'll hear it pronounced today in English. And, and I mean, we're never, we're not really saying it with the Hebrew pronunciation, which would be the most correct pronunciation, right? Um, And so we're just, it's just up to us to anglicize it as best we can. So you'll hear it done two different ways, Capernaum or Capernaum. Uh, in Wikipedia, it says to pronounce it in Capernaum. I'll, I'll just tell you, I, I fully, if that's how you pronounce it, or if that's how others pronounce it, that's great with me. I have no problem with that. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Um, because that's not based on the Greek or the Aramaic or the Hebrew, they would not say Neum, they would say Nahum or Naum. Um, and, uh, so we're clearly anglicizing it and it's spelled C-A-P-E C-A-P-E-R-N-A-U-M. And I'm not aware of any other word in English where we would take an A-U and go Neum, right? Go an E A. That, that, that's not how we do it in English. So, uh, I mean, for anglicizing it the way it's written, and we are trying to anglicize it the way it's written, if we're not saying Capernaum, uh, then uh, it, it should be Capernaum or uh, Capernaum. Capernaum. Uh, I don't know why it would, I just don't get the, how the tradition of Neum started. And this is just me as a linguist kind of geeking out, but I don't know how the tradition of saying Neum starts. It makes no sense to me, but it's very common. So why not? I'm good with it. If you want to say Capernaum, that's fine with me. I can't get myself to say that, but uh, but I'm fine with that. So uh, but I'll say Capernaum uh, is it's a modest village in the time of the savior. Um, some say it's its much larger, but but most uh, evidence based on archaeology and some other things uh, suggests around 1500 people um, at, at the largest 25 acres, probably smaller than that. It would become much larger, larger over time. Uh, there was a Roman garrison on the east side of town and it had Roman baths and so on. Uh, we know a centurion was there. I'm not sure exactly why, but a centurion was there. Uh, it's probably because it's a border village. So it's right on the the territory between um Herod Phillips territory. It's on the border of the the uh, Herod Phillips and Herod Antipas's territory. And so there would be um, taxes or uh, fares or tariffs to collect as you go back and forth between the two areas. Um, it's, uh, It was an unwalled, thin strip right along the lake, clearly a fishing village because it has has this great bay that you can get in and out to do fishing well. And it's not too far from where some of the warm springs are that a lot of the fish would congregate to. Um, It seems to have grown during the Hasmonean era, so that era just before the New Testament. It seems like it was all Jewish. Um, it's, It's not a town, really. It's a sizable village. Um, and has experienced some growth by the Savior's day. There aren't a lot of large structures, mostly just small structures. There was certainly a synagogue there. Um, There's some debates about the size of the synagogue and where it was, but there was certainly a a synagogue there. Uh, There's a lot of agricultural equipment. Uh, It's clear that a few families had a bit more wealth and and so on. We haven't found any uh, mikvot or places where they do ritual washing. They probably did that just in the sea. It's right there, so why not? Um, But what's clear is that this was the Savior's headquarters, um, this is where he based his ministry from. You get phrases like his own city in Matthew 9 or that he was at home in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Um, Peter is from this town and and Andrew and and Levi or Matthew. There's debate, you know, is, is Levi. I think Levi's probably his real name, but some people would say, no, it's uh, that's just saying what tribe he's from. I don't know. Um, but he's called sometimes Levi, sometimes Matthew. Um so that's just a little bit about the uh, the place itself. Um, really an incredible place. We've You've talked about it in a number of places. I, I just kind of want to go through Matthew chapter 9 with you, all right? So let's be clear. We've talked about this uh, a number of times. Each biblical or each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they'll have, uh, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the synoptic gospels, uh, they'll have the same stories, John has a lot of stories that aren't shared by anyone else, but, um, but these three have the same stories uh, in many cases, and they share them in a different order and in a different way, and those are for literary purposes. So uh, sometimes, uh, maybe none of them are telling us in the exact order or the right order. Clearly, none of them are telling us everything, and so more is left out than is included, and maybe none of them are included in exactly the right order. Um, of those three of the synoptic writers, Matthew's the only eyewitness to most of these things, Uh, Luke and and, uh, Mark have good sources, but Matthew's the only eyewitness, and to Capernaum, he's not only an eyewitness, this is his hometown, and the story in Matthew chapter 9 talks about his call uh, to be a a disciple of the Savior, and so it's a particularly important thing for him. He is kind of setting things up in in a literary way. Um, We have him talking about uh, going around and uh, that the Savior is going to both teach, heal, and um and work miracles and and at the end of chapter four and the next thing we get is this sermon in matthew five through seven of him teaching and then eight and nine we get him working miracles so he's certainly trying to arrange things in that way um he's also trying to show that jesus is the new moses and so he's going to kind of talk about there there are some traditions that there were ten miracles of moses so he seems to set up ten miracles of jesus um So that probably is him highlighting certain miracles as opposed to others that he skips over or doesn't talk about at all. So I don't know whether we can say that Matthew 9 is like the right order or the right thing. Although if I were going to have to choose and we don't have to choose, we can just say we don't know. But if I were going to have to choose uh, between the three synoptic writers about this stories in Capernaum, I would go with Matthew. Because, again, this is an important day for him. The day is called. It's an important place. Uh, He's an eyewitness and all of this stuff. Uh, so whether this is exactly the order and everything happened this way and on this day or not, I think that that Matthew 9 gives us an idea of what a day in Capernaum was like when the Savior was there. We know that the Savior was healing so many people that, uh, and we won't talk about the healing of the paralytic man today because we did that last week from the, the uh, Mark account, but... Um, he's healing so many people and there are so many miracles that the house that he stays in and that's Peter's house. So typically when it says the house, you mean that means Peter's house. That's the place. I'm so grateful for Peter when Jesus says he has no place to lay his head. Uh, That's true. He doesn't have a house. The closest thing he had to a house was Peter's house and Peter uh, Peter's house in some ways became the the center of his ministry. Thank you, Peter, for taking care of Jesus in that way. But in any case, um, if we know that, that, when he was in Capernaum, there were lots of miracles and lots of people came to be part of those miracles. And so I think that this describes a typical day in Capernaum when the Savior is there, whether it was exactly like this or not, I don't know, but I'm going to read it right now as if it were like this. And I think I, I'm I'm inclined to think it was. There may be literary elements for not telling other things that happened that day. Maybe there's more than this. There may be literary reasons for arranging it this way, but I suppose it was something like this. And it gives us a slice of life for the Savior. This is very real to me. So let's just um, read Peter 9, and I'm going to try and and help you picture this. So let's picture if the synagogue um, was at the time of the Savior where it ends up being built later, and some people think no, most people think yes, and if Peter's house really is the house that we think it is, and I think there's a good chance, then Peter's house is very close to the synagogue, just across the street, and we should know that these are narrow streets, like really narrow streets, uh, alleyways is what we would call them, hard-packed dirt, Very narrow streets. You don't go far. So it's just across the street. Uh, There there are probably a couple of houses uh, around there as well. Um, And if you want to know about the houses, I'd refer you back to the episode uh, where we went through. I think it's the second episode where we went through daily life. I did a short cast on daily life in the time of the Savior. And we talked about what these households were like and the courtyard, the shared courtyard with families, extended families cooking together and having, you know, presses and, and ovens there and that kind of a thing. So Peter's house is uh, uh, one of these kind right there near the synagogue. Um, so keep that in mind. And I'll just try and paint this picture for you. And he, meaning Jesus, entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city, his own city. That's Capernaum. All right. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, we talked about that last week. I'm just going to keep going, although. um, uh interestingly as we talked about that i had a daughter who's been experiencing some paralysis and this story means a lot more to me um and behold certain of the scribes what said within themselves this man blasphemeth and jesus knowing of their thoughts said we of think evil in your hearts and then we know the story he heals the man he picks up his bed and and uh verse seven and he arose and departed to his house when and so verse eight but when the multitude sought they marveled and glorified god which had given such power unto men Verse 9, and as Jesus passed forth from thence, so as he's leaving the house, so he, he he's working miracles there, teaching, preaching, and working miracles. So there are miracles that are happening that we don't know about on this day. And then he leaves the house, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of customs. So he's come out of Matthew, uh, Simon's house, heading which way, I don't know. Um, but he, he goes and he sees Matthew sitting at the receipt of customs. So this is, you know, collecting the, the border taxes, as it were. Um, And he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So this is the call of Matthew. This is a significant day, a significant event. And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house. So it's hard to know. Typically when it says the house and you're around Capernaum, it means Peter's house. But in this case, it might be Matthew's house. Matthew might have asked him to come to dinner at his house and he's throwing a feast. And there are other publicans there. Uh, So maybe Matthew and some of his other publican friends. At Matthew's house I don't know but let's suppose that they've gone from Peter's house they go out they get Matthew they go down the street a little bit more they go to Matthew's house and they start having this this meal um it says uh, uh, when he sat at meat in the house behold many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples and when the Pharisees sought they said unto his disciples why thou uh, your master with publicans and sinners and Jesus hears this and he said they that behold need not a physician uh, and then he says but go ye and learn what this meaneth, uh, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So I love that verse. He's quoting from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, this idea, I love mercy, but not more than sacrifice. So he's, so far, he's healed people we don't know about. He's healed this paralytic man and forgiven him of his sins. He's called Matthew, he's gone to dinner somewhere, maybe with Matthew, he's uh, eating with public and sinners, arguing with the Pharisees and teaching them. Verse 14, then came to him. So it's clear this same time, right? Just one right after the other. Again, maybe that's for literary reasons, but maybe it's really like this. If not, it was often like this. Then came to him the disciples of John saying, why do we fast? Or or, yeah, why do we and the Pharisees fast off but thy disciples fast not? So he's gonna answer questions about that. Um, And then verse 18, while he spake these things, so making it very clear that things are still going, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshiped him saying, my daughter is even now dead but come and lay thy hand upon her and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him. And so did his disciples. We learn elsewhere that this man's name is Jairus. Again, that's not really his name. We're anglicizing it. And in English, when you get an A and I together, you go Jai, it's I, right? So I hear people say Jairus. And say so that's not, I mean, you're anglicizing it. I guess anglicize it however you want, but usually we use English rules. Anyway, um, and This story is very touching to me. I I have three daughters. Um, They've all had some really rough uh, health problems, uh, breaking backs, um, other health problems. And there have been times where I wasn't sure uh, how they would do and I even feared for lives. Um, And so when I I hear a father pleading for the life of his little girl, that touches me. He says, my daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her and she shall live. Oh, What faith that is, that is so much faith. And I can't tell you how many times I've pled, please lay your hand upon my daughter. And Jesus arose and followed him and so did his disciples. So he's now leaving whatever house, Matthew's house or something, and he's going over probably towards the more wealthy area, although Matthew may have been in the wealthy area. Uh, At Jairus, who's the ruler of the synagogue is probably in in that kind of an area. None of them are super wealthy, but there are some houses that are a little bit bigger. Um, and, uh, And these again are narrow, really small streets. Uh, and plenty of people are going with him wherever he goes. I mean, the disciples that he's already called, these pelicans and sinners, and other people who are hoping to be um, healed. So we have this going on. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years came behind him. And we learn in other accounts that she spent every, every penny she has trying to get better. I want us to stop and think about this. First of all, if she's been bleeding for 12 years, she has been exhausted, she's got to be anemic. Um, She has to have had all sorts of things. Her life is difficult. But then when you throw in the ritual purity laws that the Jews keep, someone is, is bleeding. They are ritually impure. That means that uh, they, they shouldn't touch people and can't, uh, you know, they can't be touched and can't be touching other people. They probably won't go to people's houses. They certainly aren't welcome in the synagogue or anything like that. They can't be part of any rituals, Passover, a feast of, of uh, Tabernacles or anything like that. She has been basically, ostr- she says she is exhausted and ostracized for 12 years, not part of the religious life of her community, not part of the social life of her community, and physically worn out. Uh, my wife with a pregnancy had, uh, I think it was about six weeks where she was bleeding, and it was exhausting and, and, and dangerous and terrible. And she didn't have it was six weeks, not twelve years. And uh, I mean, this is this is a story that's bigger than we recognize in this woman's life. This is a hard, hard thing that she's gone through. But notice her faith. And again, this is one right after the other. So I'll kind of recap that in a minute. Notice her faith. Uh, she came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. In the Mark account, it just says touches his garment. Um, that's he's not going to focus on the hem, but for um, the uh, Jews, this is an important thing. This is probably the tassels um, that they are supposed to wear. We've got these these uh, tassels uh, at that point or soon thereafter. They have decided that there should be 613 of them for the 613 commandments, but they represent the commandments that Jews keep as part of the covenant. So this this is a, a special ritual part of the garment that that focuses on the covenant, and that's what she reaches out and touches. This covenant daughter, who has done what she can, reaches out in faith and touches the garment. For she said within that this hem, this this tassel. Uh, today, you might sometimes, typically you don't see them, but sometimes you'll see Jews where it, a lot of times you can't see them. They're, they're hidden under their other clothes, but sometimes they have them so that the tassels can be seen. Um, and that's what she's touching. For she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about when he saw her and he said, daughter, be of good comfort. Now, in the other account, it says that he felt virtue or power go from him. And he said, who touched me? And everyone's like, what, what do you mean, who touched you? We're all crammed in here like sardines. Everybody's touching you. And he says, No, I felt power go from me. And then she's afraid when she recognizes that he is going to find out who touched him, probably because she's not supposed to touch people. Right. And she's actually not touching him. She's touching his garment. She's careful about that. She's, 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 but she's probably bumped into other people who would rather not her touch her because she's richly impure and so on. So she's nervous about this. But he says, Be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. Oh, what a beautiful miracle. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. Like, what are you talking about? She's dead. You don't know what you're talking about. But when the people were put forth, so they still listened to him and they went out, he went in and took her by the hand. And the maid arose. He says, Talitha Kumai, which is daughter arise in the other account. And she's She's raised from the dead. Oh, what this must have meant for that family's hearts, right? The mother and the father, what a difference this must have made. Um, and the fame hereof went abroad throughout all the land. And when Jesus departed, thence, two blind men followed him. So as he's leaving and going back to dinner or something like that, two blind men follow him. And, and they're crying, saying, thou son of David, have mercy on us. So they're recognizing him as the Messiah. And when he was coming to the house, I don't know if that's Peter's house or Matthew's house or something like that, the blind man came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this. And they said unto them, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were open. and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But they spread it abroad. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man. So immediately they brought to him a dumb man, uh, possessed with the devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled. The first, he said he cast them out by the prince of devils. And the Savior says, that's stupid. Um, I think that's exactly what he said. It might be a paraphrase. Verse 36, when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad. Uh, oh, sorry. No, verse 35 is where we end this this story. And and Jesus went about all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So that that's our signal that this particular chain is ending. So let me just kind of recap that quickly. all right. So you get this story. He comes into Capernaum and as he's in supposedly or probably Peter's house, we have the man who is lowered through. So he's he's preaching and teaching and probably healing. And then these people lower this man through the house and he forgives that man and heals him. And then he calls Matthew uh, to be his disciple and he eats with him and has a debate with the Pharisees and has a debate with the disciples of John. And then he goes to heal uh, Jairus' daughter, but on the way, he heals a woman with an issue of blood, and then he goes in and raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, and on his way out, he heals two blind men, and then uh, he's in a house, and uh, he heals a dumb man that has a devil, and then he argues with the Pharisees. That's a pretty good day, right? That's the kind of day that you have when you're around Jesus of Nazareth, and especially when you're in Capernaum. Although he will chastise Capernaum for not having enough people. Clearly, some people there believe him and are his disciples. But he says if, if uh, the miracles that have been done there had been done elsewhere, then everyone would have converted. And so he will chastise Capernaum. But I just want you to get a feel for what it's like uh, as you are with the Savior uh, at any place where he's going and healing, but especially in Capernaum. And get uh, I I cannot quit thinking about when President Nelson told us to pray for and expect miracles. Um. I'm, I've been praying for and have seen many small miracles since then, and am still hoping for more miracles. Uh, but reading stories like this gives me faith, and sometimes it gives me expression uh, to, to have this idea lay your hand on my daughter, uh, or um, thy faith hath made thee whole. Those are, are verses that give expression to my feelings, my desires, my prayers, and my faith. Um, And that's one of the beautiful things about reading these stories. If we can, if they become real to us and we can place ourselves in them, then they can become something truly meaningful to us and become expressions of what we need and give us added power in that way. And I am so grateful for that. Uh, It's happening for me and I hope it's happening for you as well. Thank you.